0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Eat Your Heartland Out. I'm your host, Capri Cafaro. On today's show, we're exploring some food history legends from the Midwest. Most everyone has heard of the Good Humor Ice Cream Bar, but not many know its humble origin story in Ohio. Bill Lawson, Executive Director of the Mahoning Valley Historical Society in Youngstown, Ohio, will explain how this ice cream novelty came to be. But first, let's welcome Catherine Dolan, Professor of American Literature at Missouri University Science and Technology. She's the author of Breakfast Cereal, A Global History. And that history leads right back to the heart of the Midwest.
2: Hi, Capri. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited.
1: (laughs) Well, we're excited, too. And, um, you know, I think pretty much everybody loves cereal. And, you know, I love to know the stories behind food, and I think you do as well, which is why you do what you do. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, let's let's um, start actually talking about your newest book, Breakfast Cereal, A Global History. What compelled you to write a book about cereal?
2: Yeah, clearly, because it's just a wonderful food and everyone loves cereal. And uh, there I had had a a brainstorm or a, a a question for a while about why there were these two f- kind of focal time periods for this kind of ready to eat cold breakfast cereal, this health food movement of the late nineteenth century happening largely in the midwest, you know, Battle Creek, M- Michigan, obviously being the kind of epicenter of it. And then totally. this- counterculture movement that's happening in the 1960s where, you know, the hippies are coming out and everyone's eating granola and there's granola being served at Woodstock and, you know, this kind of thing. And so I was like, how are these two things connected? And so, and, and that was the
1: first question that led to this book. And so, so in your research, did you find out how those two things are connected?
2: uh, I more or less I did. And actually, um, so it's really funny. So uh, granola is Granola started out as something called granula, which was the very first cold breakfast cereal, ready-to-eat breakfast cereal. Well, it wasn't really ready to eat yet. Um, and it was a, a man named Jacob Caleb Jackson, and he, James, sorry, James Caleb Jackson. And he uh, made, in 1863, he made this twice-baked cereal uh, that was wheat flour, you know, and he he baked these kind of cakes twice and and for a very long time and they broke them up into little nuggets and then and that was something he called granola and it was served at these health spas up in upstate new york and and he had been unwell and he had gone to a spa himself and really really liked it so he started his own in danville new york and he made this food as part of the whole process and he named it granola and it was so that that's where it all
1: starts um but but and when when was that like what's the time frame on that so
2: that is actually early it's 1863 that granula is huh. actually invented um but the problem with granula is that you had to soak it overnight in milk or water to make it edible like to actually make you, you able to eat it so it wasn't a terribly <laughs> not so ready made yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah not so ready to eat that one's not not quite the the, the thing we wanted Um, then skip 30 years ahead into the 1890s, the mid 1890s, and you get Kellogg. And Kellogg had actually been to the Danville Spa in upstate New York. And so that's, and he had granola and he, you know, tried out the the different health foods and stuff there. And he came back to his sanitarium in Battle Creek, Michigan, and decided he wanted to do one himself. And so he had made a very similar kind of cereal to granola, a little bit different and a little bit quicker to eat. <laughs> it's not still not what we're thinking of as granola. Um, but uh, then he realized that he had come too close. He he made it quite similar to the one that Jackson had made. Um, and it was so similar that he had to worry about copyright infringement issues. <laughs> and so he changed the name from granola to granola to make the distinction <laughs> to his own food. <laughs> yeah, so that's
1: where a granola comes from. That's hilarious. Isn't that fun? Oh, it's not the same. It's just slightly different. Really? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And
2: Kellogg had been, he was being sued constantly and was suing other people constantly. He kept trying to, I do wonder, I've actually wondered that exact thing about, um, you know, can you copyright flavor or, you know, can you copyright this kind of thing? Because apparently in cereal, you cannot. People are perpetually just tweaking one little thing and then that's a whole different patent, a whole different copyright, you know. Um, So, yeah, because... He had, so Kellogg eventually did patent uh, the, the toasted flake process. And so what became cornflakes originally was wheat flakes. Um, that was the first kind of iconic patent of cold breakfast cereal. And that happened in 1895 with him for the patent of wheat flakes and preparing same. But then the very next year in 1896, he tries to sue Henry Henry Perkey for making what is now shredded wheat. And so he had processed mm. a food that was very, very simple. So if you think, you know, your good old-fashioned cornflakes, and really very little has changed, to be honest, from the original process of how these are made. Um, the next one is shredded wheat, and that comes out in 96 five. And um, and he tries to sue, but they say it's too different. You know, there, there's enough difference. He hadn't process, patented the entire process, you know, the, the entire thing. Right. He just kind of patented this one element. So to this day, we're we're like, we're
1: tweaking stuff just a little bit, just enough. So I'm curious though, you know, why? Uh, is cereal associated with health? I mean, wh- who decided that? I mean, I guess granola guy decided <laughs> that. But, uh, you know, I mean, it, you know, is this something that they actually made an argument for, um, you know, in marketing or in, you know, even in their patent applications to say there are health benefits to granola, cornflakes, shredded wheat, any of these things?
2: Yeah, absolutely <laughs> they did. Um, and it so it started out in... These would be cereals served at these health spas and sanitariums and stuff. And so there was kind of an association with health connected to them already. Um, Ironically, very, very ironically, uh, one of the things Kellogg really appreciated about his was the fact that he called them pre-digested or basically highly processed foods. And it's just so funny because <laughs> nowadays we're just like processed That's terrible. You know? <laughs> but he, right. would, you know, if you had a hard time, you know, if you had stomach ailments and stuff and digestive ailments, that it would be easier for you to get the nutrients out of the food. And so it was just so funny that we've were 360 or, you know, 180 from that at this point. Um, so there was a health element kind of already built into this whole idea of Having them prepare these very, you know, specific kinds of foods and a scientific basis kind of food for you, um, and of course the idea of it being scientific. The trick was it was overpriced. You couldn't have afforded it to the common person. You couldn't just buy it mm. yourself. And so then marketing comes along, and um, you know, putting it in boxes and putting pictures on the boxes, and the Quaker oat figure that Quaker yes. on the he's the first copyrighted figure on a. I I've I read that. Yeah. Yeah. So he, that's where that starts. And um, so then people are able to ex, you know access the foods more. And there's this whole history of who's doing what to whom and Kellogg versus post and the brother versus the brother and, you know, who's starting Kellogg company and all this. But they make all these companies that sell the foods. But the problem, of course, is then you have to market them to the public and not to a self-selected genteel audience that is going to eat whatever you hand them and be grateful for it kind of a thing. But these guys are going to want something that tastes good as well. And so they start adding sugar to it because that will make them taste better. And they're, they went back and forth for a long time fighting how much sugar. And the answer was kind of always just more, just more
1: sugar. And as as modern consumers, we know this. I mean, there are obviously multiple types of, of, you know, cereal you can get, but there's definitely an entire category that is very sugary. But it's just, it's not even pretending to be anything but just like really exactly sugar, yeah. And, um,
2: but so, and there was always this back and forth. So it was sugary slash some would always say it was too sugary, but then there were all the part of a healthy breakfast kind of elements. I just did air quotes that you probably didn't see. <laughs> but um, <laughs> yeah. part of a healthy breakfast, so you add the milk, you have you know some orange juice to the side, um, you know, and it actually bananas. Ban- bananas, bananas and stuff on top, yeah. exactly. And suddenly, it's actually a pretty good breakfast, especially if you have to have something quick. Um, and then in the early twentieth century, like into the 1930s, the government is actually working with the breakfast cereal companies quite closely, like Pat Post and Kellogg and these guys, and asking them to add things like. The different vitamins that get added to it and the different mm-hmm. um, elements and stuff, the vitamin D. I have D- to say,
1: I personally miss product 19. Right. I love product 19.
2: All <laughs> oh, the different. And, and that, when, when I think about
1: added like nutrients, I only yeah. think of product 19. It kind of tastes like vitamins, but I actually really loved it. And No, I'm sure. Very sad that they just continued it. <laughs> no,
2: it's so funny. The different, yeah. And, and you never know. The nostalgia thing is big. It could come back. So good. Um, I hope. It was. Funko Pop actually recently did a campaign where they, if you bought a Funko Pop, you got a breakfast cereal surprise. So it was like flipping the toy surprise to breakfast cereal thing. It was like you buy the toy and you get, yeah. And there was one that, that General Mills was doing not too long ago that was, if you bought a box of that cereal, you could get like, an old 80s board game, like set up like the 80s style and stuff. And so there could always, and and they were like partnering with Hasbro. And I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised to see a flip of that where like Hasbro partners with a a nostalgic version of the cereals and
1: stuff. Where did it turn to, you know, becoming that kind of iconic American breakfast staple where, you know, there was all this marketing involved as well, where you know, you're having the toys uh, Mm -hmm. in the box, you're having games on the back there. The marketing, you know, to kids or to families became a big deal. Where did you see that kind of come into play? Definitely.
2: So there were marketing and promotional materials were always, as soon as they were boxes, they could put stuff in or put stuff on, they were putting stuff on. But it was often like recipe booklets or, you know, handouts or things like that. Like there's a little pamphlet that Post does called the Road to Wellville." that's um, in his boxes of grape nuts that was, you know, how he had been sick and he got better because he ate like this. And yep. so there were always things like that, even back in the 19th century. But it isn't really the turn that you mentioned, I think, is that post-World War II and mm-hmm. where there's lots of different technologies now and there's lots of different um, and plastic is easier to... Uh, make into different things. So then suddenly you can make little cheap plastic toys that you stick in boxes and that really helped things take off. There were ads uh, for, and, and like sponsorship and stuff connected to cereals back in radio. So back in the 20s and 30s and stuff, mm, um, sure. that takes off real big into the TV world is almost when it you know right. really explodes. And interestingly, and also starts getting marketed very directly to children and the sugar yeah. content goes, straight through the roof when that happens and that actually leads to the second half of the granola story actually um because as it's going back and forth and being healthy versus less healthy versus you know part of a complete breakfast and suddenly we've cured pellagra in this country because we're eating <laughs> breakfast here you know it's this kind of thing um the so it's too sugary and and also cereal is great cuz kids can prepare it right you kids can't prepare right. porridge cuz it's hot you know and kids can't make you know, eggs or, you know, stuff where you're turning a stove on and stuff. You don't want a little kid to do that, but they can pour cereal, they can pour milk. And, and so suddenly they've taken care of themselves. So as both parents are going into the workforce more um, and there isn't as much time to have like a full kind of, you know, meat and potato-y kind of a breakfast around the right. table, this is something that's really convenient for families. And, um, but then they're like, we what we would also still like our families to be healthy. And so how can we, have an alternative cereal that isn't quite so sugary that isn't quite so um you know full of all this other stuff and and you know the the way they had started putting frosting on it and and, and believe it or not the actual the frosted flakes that concept was was yeah. pitched as a way to make kids not put as much sugar on their cereal. like if
1: Oh, that's interesting.
2: Because so you're like, like put, controlling you're, the yeah, dosage yeah, yeah, of yeah. sugar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, wow. Um, but still, but either way, it was too much. And
1: so... When did the little characters come into play? As you mentioned, Oh, yeah, yeah. Like Tony no, the, the Tiger and, yeah, they were, you know, Digum the Frog. And, 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 the, all and all crackle, be, Snap, Crackle, Pop. I think Crackle, Pop, pop yeah. were
2: some of the earliest ones. And that's early 20th century um, is when they come out. And it's before... Yeah. And there's little pictures of and and stuff, but you know, there aren't the commercials and stuff till the fifties, but yeah, they all, and they're all over the world. All the different kinds of cereals have, you know, there's like cocoa, the koala in you know, other countries and, and <laughs> things like that. You know? um, but yeah, so granola comes about in the 1960s with a guy named Landon Gentry. And he, um, he tries, he makes a cereal that is called granola and he goes back to the Kellogg example, but he, You know, changes it obviously, and he adds oats, and he adds fruits and nuts, and um, he still uses sugar. He uses maple syrup and honey, and Mm. you know, brown sugar and stuff instead of just this, you know, cane sugar. But um, and that is also in the Midwest. He's in. uh, He gets his his product is bought by uh, a place called Pet Incorporated, which was a food company. It actually was an evaporator. Oh, right, like the pet milk, like the pet milk, like exactly, yeah, yep. And um, in St. Louis, and so. They create a company called Heartland Natural Food Company, and that sells the granola, and it's pitched very nostalgically with like sepia tones, and you know that kind of. It's a simple food, you know, mm-hmm. and so that's and hence, and it's right in the middle of the '60s, and and the Heartland company is early '70s, and so that's where that whole connecting it to counterculture comes about, uh, and it is mm-hmm. indirect. Re- reaction to the oh, let's find something that's an alternative to the super sugary sugars that are super sugary cereals that are taking over so much now.
1: Right, and and it seems probably even you know this kind of very corporate, you mm-hmm. know, yep. uh, branding that was going on with nap Crackle and Pop and yep. being on television and and all of those kind of things. So I would suspect that that quote unquote countercultural element, to use your words, um, was probably also. A reaction to this kind of corporate identity to industrialized foods, too. Exactly, exactly. And of course, just like
2: every other attempt at that, it got corporatized very quickly. Of course, of course. <laughs> all the all the big brands got their own version of granola and still sold that along next to all their other cereals. Of course.
1: I, I want to ask this this one, you know, particular question um, as we're we're you know getting close to starting to wrap up here why the Midwest? I mean, you know, I would suspect maybe it had something to do with being the breadbasket, so to speak, and the agricultural resources that are there that contribute to making, you know, grain-based things, corn, wheat, et cetera. But it seems like the Midwest, whether it's Battle Creek, Michigan, or the Twin Cities, or apparently, you know, wherever the granola uh, folks came from in uh, the 1960s and 70s, it's, you know, the epicenter of cereal. Why? Yeah, I think
2: between ease of transportation, so growing the stuff and then the trains being there, so ease of transportation. And then if you think about it, who's coming out to the Midwest at that time? Um, you know, these are people that are entrepreneurial, that are very ambitious, that are yeah. trying, you know, uncharted territory to some extent and especially in the late 19th century this is happening and again with general mills and battle creek that's right in that time frame and post of course um and so yeah i think it's that kind of happy mixture of uh the the cross between it's it's convenient to get the materials to you and then you can take you know you can get the grain to chicago and from chicago to battle creek pretty easily on a train or something right and then but then also you have people that see opportunities. I want to take advantage of opportunities. And it's just, it's a much more convenient place to do that. And if you fail, it's not going to hurt you and stuff as a place like Boston or New York would be or something like that. It's right. my take. That, that didn't come up in the book, actually. It's a real interesting question, but that would be my um, belief theory about why that's happening here mm-hmm. so much more than somewhere like New York or New Jersey or something like that.
1: Yeah. It, I mean, it certainly does make sense. And I, you know, it sounds like you've done, you know, quite a lot of, of research on the topic that, you know, your hypothesis is probably well healed and in, in, in fact, for sure. It's a pretty good guess. Um, yeah. It's a pretty good guess. It's, yeah. And, you know, sometimes that, that's all we can do. This is, this is so, uh, so interesting. What have you found for, you know, sort of the future of cereal? Did you look at that at all? Yeah. Um, you know, as far as, you know, now what, uh, 21st century cereal?
2: Yeah. So there's all kinds of fun things that, and who knows? Well, and that, so a lot of my quote unquote future of cereal stuff is kind of really just what I'm noticing in the present and then kind of maybe a little bit of hypothesizing. Uh, but so granola bars, um, granola bars are the next big thing because families are now too busy to pour a bowl of cereal as they're, <laughs> you know, and sit down to actually eat a bowl of cereal. They have to grab it as they're running to the car to get, you know, into, you know to go to work and stuff now. And with COVID that's kind of changed. A little, like that was the the now of the 20 teens. <laughs> so now right. now people are working at home. That's a little different. Um, also fourth meal. So, so there's a, a globally, there's a reduction in people eating breakfast cereal right now compared to mm-hmm. like in the forties and fifties and sixties. Uh, so they're trying to compete against, either not eating breakfast at all or eating granola bars or some, you know, something else. And so um, they're trying to expand into other parts of the world. So specifically Southeast Asia, um, just because of population numbers and there's, right. to some, there's some success, uh, but it's a big fight because this is, those are largely cultures that like savory breakfast foods. And so, um, mm-hmm. you know, the, the bowl of, fr- you know, sugary cereal is just like not their, their idea at all. Um, And then also fourth meal. So how can you eat cereal when it's not for breakfast? Um, Can you eat cereal as like a quick dinner food? Um, And in fact, yes, I do. (laughs) I was going to say I
1: 100 percent eat eat, uh, cereal as snack like all the time. Well, I think I think I'm gonna stick to just, you know, the the regular old, you know, monster cereals at least for now. <laughs> Although I do love myself some Malto meal and cream of wheat and some of those other things too. But oh. this has been such a fun conversation. I'm so glad that you had some t- uh, time to join us on the show. Yes, Where can we you. find your book?
2: Yeah, so um it is published through Reaction Press in the UK, and then it'll be distributed by University of Chicago Press here in the US. Um, and it's on Amazon, of course, and wherever books are sold that way bookshop.org and all those kinds of companies yep. um so uh and it's released uh it's released March 1st in the UK but it's uh, according to this uh, uh, what i just looked up today April 28th is when it's actually going to be released here in the US so um,
1: yeah and it's not fantastic that expensive. <laughs> it's well for- good to know good to know <laughs> this is uh, we we will certainly make sure our listeners know when and where to get the book really? Catherine Dolan author of Breakfast Cereal, A Global History. Thank you for being on Eat Your Heartland Out. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. We're going to take a quick break, but stick around for Bill Lawson, Executive Director of the Mahoning Valley Historical Society in Youngstown, Ohio. He's coming up next to chat about the creation of the Good Humor Ice Cream
0: Bar. This episode is supported by HRN business member Food Karma Projects, dedicated to community building by creating unique food events that showcase the best local food, chefs, beer and wine. Get fired up to taste the very best brisket, pastrami and more with the return of Brisket King NYC as it leads off the triple crown of New York City barbecue events. This first event takes place on Wednesday, April 26th at Pig Beach in Astoria, Queens, New York. To purchase tickets or for more information about this Meat Lovers Fest, visit brisketking.com. Food Karma Project supports HRN's creative, educational reporting and storytelling that drive conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place.
1: Welcome back to Eat Your Heartland Out. This hour, we're exploring food legends with roots in the Midwest. Now, I'd like to welcome Bill Lawson, Executive Director of the Mahoning Valley Historical Society in Youngstown, Ohio. Bill is an expert on the history of the Good Humor ice cream bar and its Ohio origin story. We got plenty to talk about. Welcome, Bill.
3: Well, thank you, Capri. I'm uh, very happy to be here.
1: Well, you know, growing up in in uh, our area, um and oftentimes on this program I don't necessarily do uh, a lot of things in Ohio because frankly I could do a million episodes just on things in in our backyard, but um there are certain things that uh come from uh the Mahoning Valley that uh, you know really do warrant um uh, more of a national spotlight and um, things that people don't necessarily realize. So I want to make sure people know where they're from, and that is um, the roots of the ice cream bar, particularly the Good Humor bar. That ice cream on a stick that so many of us have come to know and love um, and associate with summertime. So, Bill, you're you're you know an expert on this as the executive director of the Mahoning Valley Historical Society. Give us a, a glimpse into uh, the man. Uh, behind the Good Humor Bar.
3: All right. Well, uh, the inventor, uh, the person who brought it to life, his name is Harry Burt. And he was a local product uh, born in 1874, uh, north of Youngstown, a little north of Warren, here in northeastern Ohio, in a little village called Cortland. And there he spent his early days. He, He moved to Cleveland for a while, but he was in the workforce as a teenager and uh, really gravitated toward the growing food service business uh, you know beyond restaurants uh, at festivals and and shops with novelty foods, etc through his teens um, and really worked hard and learned as much as he could. Uh, he was at the Columbian exhibition in Chicago in 1893, uh, which was a, a big event, a world event, but right in Chicago, and worked as a taffy puller at the oh. exposition there. And um, afterward, he moved back to Northeast Ohio and Youngstown City in particular in um, 1894, and began selling penny candy, making and selling penny candy in downtown Youngstown out of a little shop on one of the side streets. But even then, he knew what he was doing, just not even 20 years old, in terms of um, looking at his audience, which for Penny Candy would be primarily school children, uh, being located about a block and a half away from the Front Street School in downtown Youngstown. And uh, that, I think, more than anything, was his genius. I mean, he had quality products all through his career, but he knew what people wanted, and he listened to people and he made his candy store and, and later his full service restaurant, candy parlors, experiences, you know, not just some place to go buy things. And um, so his business grew over the next um, 15, almost 20 years, and it included not only hard candy, but chocolates. Um, he got into ice cream. Uh, in the late 1890s, even though commercial refrigeration and freezing wasn't universally available or or cost effective, um, he still wanted to offer that as a product. He had a soda fountain, he had a lunch counter and and tables and whatnot to serve people lunches, and um, and this was his concept was uh, provide an experience for his customers. Always make and serve quality products and uh, make you feel good about berts, and then that led to word of mouth uh, marketing and telling other people and and became very popular through all of that.
1: So did he make his products uh, you know within, for example the the soda fountains or or the you know the places where he had a storefront, or did he have a, a separate uh, manufacturing facility for his penny candies, his chocolates where he would you know be able to experiment and innovate?
3: He would have either basement or back rooms, actually, uh, candy-making um, facilities, and started mainly with hand-dipping and, and hand-forming and mixing, but then started to get more automated as he got further into the 20th century. And uh, and really, in 1920, 21, he was ready to, to go big-time, And that's when, in 1921, he purchased a building at 325 West Federal Street uh, that had already been built and opened for a little over a year. And he bought it uh, from the developer who put that together and spent half a million dollars in 1921, 1922. I was going
1: to say, that's a lot of money in 1921.
3: And he created what I would call his... um, a uh, dream business plan his magnum opus in terms of what he wanted to have not only as a center for manufacturing but also retail sales and community experiences and events and and all the things that would make people think positively about bert's products and how would um, he bring
1: those things together then how how would he bring together that experience those quality products and you know in this this location, basically which is downtown Youngstown, for those that are not familiar um how did he how did he bring those threads together?
3: He was very conscious of the public space in his buildings and and that included his previous stores or he he actually had some satellite stores that remain in downtown but when he focused on this location at 325 West Federal Street, um, once you walked through the door, it was beautiful. Uh, it was well-appointed. It smelled good. Uh, the displays and the cases and, um, were all beautiful. I mean, he had candy sales. He had ice cream sales. He had a soda fountain. He had a bakery counter where you could buy fresh wow. baked goods. He had a cut flour counter. So there's a lot of things you can get at Burt's. And then behind the retail section was this well-appointed, lovely restaurant area where he served lunch um, six days a week. And then beyond that, underneath the mezzanine in the back, there was a private dining area for group meetings and parties and then also a a gathering space up on the mezzanine on the first floor. And so that was your experience day-to-day. On the second floor, he built and fitted out a beautiful ballroom assembly room that he called the Rainbow Assembly Room, and above that on the mezzanine was another large banquet area, and um, that had a dance program that runs six nights a week for two hours. Uh, You paid 55 cents, uh, you got refreshments, you got a dance card, Wow! and two hours on the floor. So, again, part of that experience, any time of the day, if you needed or wanted to be at Burt's, there was something going on. Basement level was his ice cream manufacturing center. And then the top third floor is where he made his hard candies and chocolates. And there he had assembly machines and lines and also hand-dipping stations. And then a large room where everything was uh, assembled and packed into boxes and cartons to, to go out either to the first floor store or out to other locations in the city.
1: Would he sell his, uh, goods wholesale to other, um, stores that were not directly related to Bert's?
3: Yes, he did. He had a, a wholesale business, uh, with local and regional department stores and specialty shops. So you would see Bert's candies, um, at say Strauss, Strauss, Hirschberg, and yeah. McKelveys, which were the two big Youngstown department stores, and in Warren and Sharon. Um, so yeah, he he did retail, he did wholesale, and and of course the, the key was to get that name out there and, and get it associated with his quality candies and and have people coming back for more.
1: Well, I it sounds like Bert's uh, you know is is was well uh, ahead of his time. Um, and at some point, um, he stumbled upon a, a bit of genius um, and created basically, uh, at least as legend has it, the ice cream bar on a stick. So how did he get from point A to point B?
3: Well, uh, part of it was uh, past product development. Part of it was, you know, inspiration and perspiration, uh, trial and error um, but we have at least one reference uh, in our historical records that part of his hard candy product line was actually a, a hard candy sucker. Uh, we know it would have a wooden stick uh, and hard candy poured into a mold or around the stick. And from what the reference we have, uh, they called that the good humor sucker, um, which was many years before uh, the... Ice cream sucker came about, but uh, the the name is is probably the most interesting part of it because good humor at that time was a folk medicinal term, meaning that if you were in a good disposition, you were healthy, um, you didn't have any ailments or things or you ate well, well nourished or whatnot, then you were considered to be in a good humor, and that's exactly the angle he was trying to get with his products. And so we have this good humor, hard candy sucker. Fast forward to about 1920, um, we now have very reliable, uh, large scale uh, commercial refrigeration and, and freezing, uh, which he had in, in his spaces, uh, in his manufacturing spaces for ice cream. And he was trying to come up with a novelty item made of ice cream that somebody could eat in their hands rather than out of a dish or even a cone. And in order to do that, he needed to concoct some sort of uh, coating to put over it. And and he was looking at chocolate-coated vanilla ice cream, but he didn't want the chocolate to melt in people's hands. So his initial step was to try to make a, a chocolate formula with enough paraffin in it that it didn't melt and get sticky all over your hands, which The problem was when you got to the point where it was no longer sticky, you really didn't want to eat it because it tasted like wax. Right. uh, So that was not working. And then he had an adult son and daughter who were in the business with him, and he was probably talking to them about it. And his son, I think, said, well, we make uh, hard candy suckers putting the candy on a wooden stick. Why don't we put the ice cream on a stick and people can hold it that way? And it's like, voila. That just opened everything up for him, and uh, so then his development went toward that. And in order to freeze and coat and install a stick in these uh, good humor ice cream suckers, uh, that involved some innovation, some mechanical processes that he actually got patents for hmm. um, to to hold on to that intellectual property, and uh, which is important a little further down the road in, in terms of some of the competition that were out there creating frozen Novelties um, in the early 1920s but he actually tell, tell
1: me yeah tell me a little bit about that i mean what how did the good humor bar stack up to you know some of the other potential competitors like Isley's, for example well
3: isleys is a, is a good thing to to compare to because at the same time uh, they're developing their Klondike bars, which are chocolate coated ice cream blocks uh, that were wrapped in foil, but uh, they just left it for the customer to unwrap it and, and hold the ice cream bar in the foil and eat it that way, not getting it on their hands. Um, I don't think Bert ever had a problem with that because that wasn't what he was holding on to as his greatest innovation. It was the sucker part of it, having it on a stick. And so he went out with his product um, and it was an immediate hit. And also at the same time out in California, you had the person who developed popsicles, which was just, you know, a frozen, fruity, sugary water uh, with a stick frozen into it. Um, now, that's the one that, that Bert retaliated against and actually filed suit against the inventor and, and manufacturer of Popsicle. And, and that went on for a little while, and, and eventually it turned out uh, in favor of, of Bert uh, preserving his copyright on putting stick into a frozen confection.
1: Wow. That um, there, the, I mean, uh, I think that sometimes as consumers, we often, you know, overlook kind of what goes into the back end of the things that, that we actually eat. And uh, that's why I think so much of this is so interesting. <laughs> um, it is
3: interesting and it's ironic today. Um, Popsicle, Good Humor, and Klondike, all those brands are owned by the same company, Unilever. Um, oh, interesting. But they were all competing with each other 100 years ago.
1: Yeah that seems to be, you know, quite a a trend anymore that a lot of the the brands end up getting consumed by a larger umbrella and then they end up just, you know, kind of basically being a label um to to a larger multinational corporation. So so tell me so how did uh, you know the good humor bar really, you know, um you just talked about the competition and everything that was going on then, but you know, ultimately it made its way um, out of Youngstown and into the hands of everybody before Unilever many, many, many years later. So, um, w- you know, how did how did that happen, and what was the reception of uh, of the Good Humor bar by the the general public?
3: Well, it was very well received. Um, he sold a lot of them out of his stores. Uh, another reason why he he bought and developed 325 West Federal Street was to have a mass production line for the Good Humor ice cream suckers, which he didn't have room in his other locations, and so he created a new manufacturing space for Good Humor. Um, and the innovation has just continue at this point because along with selling out of his stores, he hired young kids, boys mainly, put a, a freezer box with dry ice and had them go out and sell them on the streets in Youngstown uh even had some tricycles with a freezer box in the front where they could pedal further out uh to sell ice cream. And then the whole notion of the ice cream truck, uh I believe, was another one of his innovations in terms of taking it from the manufacturing center and out many miles into the neighborhoods around Youngstown and Warren and having drivers in the trucks with bells ringing to let people know that uh, the Good Humor Man was coming. And again, this is early on, 1922 to 24. Uh By 1924, he had a fleet of 12 trucks running throughout the Youngstown wow. area and expanded on that uh, through the rest of the 1920s. Um, and as far as automobile delivery, uh, again, he's not only an innovator but a pioneer mm-hmm. because in his earlier business, going back to 1902, he bought his first automobile chassis from Oldsmobile, sent it to the Youngstown wagon and carriage manufacturing company in downtown, a carriage works, and they built a custom body and which included a cockpit with a seat and a wheel for the driver. And then in the front and back, there were bins for his products. So they would do deliveries with, with this car, which this is 1902 when 99% of the people in this country didn't have cars. And, uh, So he took that a step further with the specialized trucks that had freezer units on the back and a driver and a uniform going out into the uh, neighborhoods to sell. And he was also starting to franchise uh, in the mid-1920s. His son, actually, Harry Burt Jr., bought a franchise and took it down to Florida. And uh, unfortunately for Harry Burt, um, I'm sure he had a dream of, of going nationwide with good humor uh, but he also had heart disease and died in uh, 1926. He wasn't quite 52 years old uh, of heart disease. And so the the dream ended for him there. And at that point, his widow, Cora, uh, who was his second wife, took his shares of, of his company. Uh, his son and daughter were involved, um, but then... 2 years later in 1928 uh, Cora decided and, and accepted an offer from a group of investors who became Good Humor Corporation of America and they took the brand they, they took the patents and all the concepts that Burt had developed with you know not only store sales but also out in the neighborhoods and uh, Good Humor trucks moved their headquarters to Chicago and then they created the nationwide network of franchisers so that the Good Humor ice cream bar and the Good Humor man became uh, an iconic uh, brand in the 20th century across the country.
1: Well, you're right. I mean, he—you know—he really is a, a pioneer, um, and um, this is why I'm again so excited to be able to share this story uh, with with a, a wider audience as part of my hometown pride. Is there anything else about uh, Good Humor or Burt's that you think is relevant to? This larger conversation of you know iconic you know food, um, you know, and innovation.
3: Well, it's again, it's it's part of a larger business development across the country, and there's a lot of products that still survive today um, that, that came out of this period, especially with with freezing technologies and refrigeration technologies, so they could be preserved for long periods of time um, from the late teens. On through, uh, but I think Harry Burt um, and his marketing genius and uh, his desire, overarching desire to please people and, and give them a positive experience, whether they were getting an ice cream sucker out of a truck from a driver or visiting his sites in Youngstown or Warren or Sharon, um, he he the the good humor name, the good humor brand, the whole good humor concept of of being a healthier person. <laughs> I mean, that that's the great <laughs> through, thing about through him.
1: Cream, through, ice right. <laughs> through ice cream. Through <laughs> ice cream. Through ice cream. And you know, candy. Who,
3: who knew? A <laughs> hundred years ago, um, in terms of the, the fat involved and whatnot, but it was just, uh, it was a time of the novelty treats, and, and he took it and ran with it uh, better than most, I would say. And And so we are definitely proud of him here in Youngstown in the Mahoning Valley, and the fact that this all happened right here in downtown Youngstown.
1: Um, well, and speaking of that, since I, I have you here on the program, if anybody wanted to come and visit the Mahoning Valley Historical Society, um, would they be able to see some of this uh, good humor history in, in real life?
3: Yes. Uh, to continue the story of, of his uh, magnum opus, his, his realization of his business plan and dream, uh, 325 West Federal Street, which was uh, Burt's Confectionery from 1922 to 1934. Later, it became a, a wholesale radio, radio television, and electronics company called Ross Radio. Uh, since 2014, and, and with our grand opening in 2017, that building is preserved um, and adapted for use, and it's now called the Tyler Mahoning Valley History Center. And our organization, Mahoning Valley Historical Society, runs it, and it is open to the public. Six days a week, uh, Tuesday through Sunday from noon to four in downtown Youngstown at 325 West Federal Street. And along with our archive center and our local history exhibits, the ballroom uh, we've managed to preserve um, almost to its original grandeur in terms of the way it was laid out in 1922. It's a popular event space for local and regional residents here in the Mahoning Valley. Uh, The candy factory on the third floor is now our education center uh, that includes classrooms and uh, an exhibit gallery, which is partially installed right now, but um, right in the front where they did all the sorting and packaging of the candy is is now an exhibit gallery. Breathtaking view of downtown Youngstown and the lower north side of Youngstown. And um, with all that also, we have self interpretive graphic panels that tell the story of the building and especially of Burt's innovations and and what he did there uh, in the 1920s. So we're very proud of that. And uh, it's open for people to view um, six days a week.
1: Fantastic. Well, I will definitely be uh, making another visit down there. I'm sure in the near future. Um, and anybody else, I would definitely uh, suggest and recommend. If you happen to be in the Northeast Ohio region, go and check out the uh, the Tyler History Center uh, and and see a bit of Bert's uh, and its story uh, for yourself. Uh, Bill Lawson, thank you so very much for joining me and each your Heartland out. Eat Your Heartland Out is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.